Father in heaven, we thank you that you love us and care for us so much. That it was us that should have been on that cross. We deserve the wrath of God. And yet, Father, you directed your wrath of God onto your Son and judged him as though he committed our sins. And grace was applied to us. It was astounding, Lord. That message never gets old. We still revel in it each and every day. Many, I'm sure, in this weekend ponder it at time of waking up in the morning, think that our Lord died for us so we can live for Him. What a beautiful truth. Warms our heart, causes us to share the Gospels with others, and then live for You, Lord. Father, we thank You for VBS this week. We give You praise that that Gospel, that same Gospel was preached time and time again, taught to children, memorized, uh, put into crafts, into conversation. Over and over, these young children heard the Gospel. And Father, you tell us that your word will not return void. And so we sent your word home with those children every day. And we pray that it would have a great impact on families. You would draw them to yourself, cause them to know you and be saved. And to join a local church that would exalt Christ and grow them in their faith, Lord. We do thank you for our missionaries, as Bobby prayed. We are so grateful for them. Many are are in battles, Lord, in very difficult places. May we never forget them, Lord. May we always be giving and serving and praying and seeing how we can care for them, Lord. Father, we think of those who can't be here today. There are a number, Lord. Some have gone through procedures. Some are trying to heal up. Some have got sick serving the Lord. Lord, we pray that you would just give them strength. And we pray that today's message would encourage them as well as all of us here. We ask you to do this for your glory, Lord. We want you exalted today. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text is 1 Corinthians 10, verses 11 through 13. I hope to finish up this part of the context here. And I pray that you'd be encouraged. Heated warnings have always been a problem with people, haven't they? Many have been heated of some great disaster to come. And failed to heed that warning and they succumbed to the problems of pride and arrogance. I love history. I particularly do enjoy studying war history a little bit. I love the Civil War and the World Wars. And I was thinking this week of Pearl Harbor. I know we're about six months away from the anniversary. But for some reason I, I began to think about it and started to look into it just a little more. I, said, I thought, well, Lord, how, what warnings were given there? Well, there were repeated warnings given, and the cost was great. I'll give you the cost before I give you the warnings. We lost eight battleships that were sunk or destroyed or damaged in some way. Three cruisers were damaged, three destroyers damaged, 188 aircraft destroyed, 159 aircraft damaged, and worse, 1,143 wounded and 2,335 killed. Many still lay entombed. In the Arizona. But it was not without warning. (laughs) Now, many years later, they've discovered many things that they should have seen as the warnings were over and over. In 1932, they simulated an exercise of an attack on Pearl Harbor. This is, you know, nine years previous. They flew in 152 planes a half hour before dawn. And the report came back, it was disastrous. November 11, 1940, 
a year, a little over a year before the attack, Britain attacked the Italian fleet in their own uh, harbor and absolutely devastated the Italian naval force. It was put in display in front of them. With war imminent, the American leaders decided to move the U.S. fleet from the west coast of California to Pearl Harbor. The fleet arrived on April 2nd, 1941. It was scheduled to leave by May 9th, but they never did. Many of you know some of this history, but Admiral James Richardson protested fiercely that the fleet should not be there. It was in danger to exposure. He warned repeatedly and even got his way all the way to the president with his warning. But they got, went on heated. January 29th, back a little ways, 27, January 27th, 1941, there was a Peruvian spy network that had made its way deep into Tokyo. And there they learned of the plan of attack and they warned the State Department. It went unheeded. March 31st, 1941, a naval report predicted that Japan would declare war on U.S. and they would do that by striking Pearl Harbor using their own aircraft carriers to do it. It was unheeded. August 10th, 1941, a top British agent, codenamed Tricycle, told the FBI that a planned attack on Pearl Harbor was going to occur soon. Early that fall, before the attack of Pearl Harbor, a Korean underground spy network gave positive proof that the Japanese were preparing an attack on Pearl Harbor before Christmas. And there was many, many more warnings. But the fact is, Pearl Harbor needed not to happen if warnings were heeded. It was predicted long before it happened. And when we don't like the message, we often turn on the messenger. And that's what's happening in our text. 1 Corinthians 10 is a a reminder, a, a call to remember the heeding of a warning of a nation of Israel that went before them. They had failed in many ways. They took the grace of God and abused it time and time and time again. Paul took time, as we saw last week, to show example after example of what happened to them as they rejected the will of God and the faithfulness of God. And in the end, Israel really hated the messenger. They turned on Moses many times, often blamed him for so many things. And that's what the Corinth church has done to Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, he quotes from their own letters. He says, quote, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Wow, there's a pastor letter you get that you go, thanks. <laughs> See, Paul knew his Old Testament history, though. He knew the Word of God. Remember, all they held in their hands at this time was Old Testament, mostly Old Testament this time, and that's how they studied, and that's how they preached, and that's how they preached the glories of Christ. But Paul cared about the righteousness of God. He cared about the love that he had for the Corinthians, even in their struggles. And so he sought strongly to warn them the effects of abusing God's grace took time to read 
the last few chapters of Deuteronomy. I look forward to getting to that in time in our Wednesday night services. But I started in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and worked my way through several chapters. And there, just mark this, there is warning after warning after warning that Moses gives the nation of Israel. Long before they fall into the depths of the sin they did. But that leads us to our last three verses of this context. I really see 1 through 13 as a contest and that context, and then there's a, another set that comes behind that we'll get into next week. But these last three verses of this section, we find the conclusion of this warning and one of the greatest encouragements right with it. And Paul wants us to know there's a seriousness about neglecting who God is and what God has done and what God has said, but at the same time, the faithfulness of God will provide a way out if you'll put your knee on the ground. And you'll repent. And so this morning I want to look at a couple of thoughts and see if we can be encouraged from these and strengthened and warned and challenged. Number one, examples and instructions that motivate a sense of urgency. I want you to get this, a sense of urgency to finish well for the glory of Christ. There's examples and instructions that motivate us. If the Bible can't motivate you, you're not going to get it from me. This man is imperfect in person and in speech. But I preach from a Bible that is flawless. And if this doesn't warn you and give you the instructions, I have no other hope for you. <laughs> this is God's word. And it speaks to our hearts. Look with me at verse 11 again. Now these things have happened to them, look at it, these things. It's referring back, look at verse 6. Now these things happened. Verse 11, now these things happened. They happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instructions. It went from to them to our instruction. Notice that prepositional phrase there. Upon whom the end of the age has come. Now these things is referring back to that abuse of grace. God did so much, he led them through wildernesses. He's, he separated the seas. He drowned their enemies. Remember that first sermon three weeks ago. And then last week, it, it reminded us of the examples that were given to the Corinthians and to us that, that why the end is coming. And, and there's, there's problems in our life that need to be dealt with. There's idolatry and immorality. And there's a testing of God. And there's a grumbling. These were given to us so we don't fall into those same sins and fall under the judgment of God. And notice... He says in this amazing statement, for our instruction. So these examples from those who went before us, these ones who rejected the grace of God, decided to live according to their flesh, they're given to us, and notice this, they're for the believer in this final age, and I'll get more into that. What a fascinating statement. Now, there's a sense of urgency, isn't there, when you read this text? The end of the age, there's an urgency coming. The apostles pick up on this type of teaching. Peter says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit if for the purpose of prayer. The end of all things is near. This is Peter, first century, writing to the dispersion of the church. Well, where did they get this? Well, the apostles knew this was the final age. They knew things would, were coming to the end here. And, and they knew it because they heard Jesus preach on this. Oh, John chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus, we must work the works of him. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, I must work the works of him. He says that in other places. But here towards the end of his life, as he's moving towards the cross, he says, we must work the works 
of God. He's bringing us into this conversation. The disciples knew he, they were a part of this great plan of God. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Listen to this. Night is coming when no one will work. There's an end coming. John chapter 12, 35 and 36. So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light. So the darkness will not overtake you. What, what a statement. The darkness is waiting to overtake people. With that comes judgment of God, eternal damnation. All of that awaits. And Jesus urges his disciples to work while you have light. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Isn't that the truth? The world fights against the things God stands for. The world applauds evil and immorality, the things that very, very, very much killed our Christ on the cross, sin, they applaud. And too many Christians have joined that applaud, or so-called Christians. Jesus goes on to say, while you have the light, believe in the light. That's the difference right there. Oh, Jesus, the light of the world. Do you really believe? Well, not everything. I mean, that book's pretty harsh. You know, there's a lot of bad things happening there. See, people don't like the Bible because they don't realize that it speaks truths, it uh, unfolds the humanity of man, how bad he is. Yes, the Old Testament is full of murders and death and wars and rape and all kinds of things because it shows man's desperate position in need of a Savior. Instead, they judge God for that. But in the end of this little phrase here, Jesus says, you have become the sons of light. Why do you want to mess with darkness? Your sons of light. Jesus went on to just prove this point over and over through parables, right? He'd give a parable of the virgins who have their, their oil lamps full and their wicks trim, ready for the return of the master. He gave parables on vineyards that were to be taken care of because the master was coming back. He talked about talents that were given and to be used and multiplied because the master's coming back. Over and over he said, the master's coming back. And yet so many people are not ready for the master to return. The head of the household is coming. The apostles pick up on this. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. There's some wonderful passages. There's too many for me to look at this morning, but I want to pick out a couple. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17. Paul encouraging this church in Philippi to run, to not get caught up in false worship, to not see themselves identified with their, their own righteousness. They have no righteousness of their own. Paul would say, I, the only righteousness I have is what was given to me from Christ, not derived from the law. He understood the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's how he wanted to live his life. And so he pressed on putting things behind, realizing that God forgave him for things and pressing on. I think one of the dangers of the church today is so many people allow themselves to be caught in the past. And you just get your tail end kicked back there. Because I think Satan works very strongly in the past and in the future. Some can't get over the mistakes and sinful life that they have and they feel like they always have to be repenting and so forth because they don't understand the complete forgiveness of Jesus Christ. 
Some men, and I'll put us in this category, where, yeah, I'm good with that. I just want this, this, and this. And we live out in the future. We become targets. Paul says, look, I'm pressing for the gold upward calling of Jesus Christ. I'm not perfect yet, but that's where I'm going. And then he brings a sense of urgency to this in verse 17. Look with me, brethren, join in the following my example. Now, we've seen some bad examples in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now he says, you follow my example. In other places, he says, you follow my example as I follow Christ. And so here he says, follow my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So it's just not me. There's other people who have got a hold of this Christ-centeredness. There's other people who have been become gripped with Jesus Christ, overwhelmed with who he is and what he's done with, him, with them and forgiven their sins and want to walk with him in such a way that's glorifying them. He says, it's just not me. And praise the Lord. Isn't that true? And I thank the Lord that there's many in this church that are gripped with the person of Jesus Christ. Notice he says, for many walk of whom I often told you, and this is the opposite here, and now tell you even weepingly that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. See, he says many walked. It tells you that there's some that came along for the ride for a while. They're, 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 they're concerned that they could go to hell maybe. And if this whole Jesus thing and this whole Bible thing turns out to be true, I better have some, a little assurance in my back pocket. But eventually they just couldn't hold the line, could they? Because they're walking a line they could not hold without Christ. And they fall away. And I'll tell you, there's nothing more devastating, what I would think humanly, to the cause of Christ is one who was raised in the cause of Christ and turns from it. Judas. I mean, we have examples, don't we? So, so Paul is pouring out his heart here. He wants you to find examples of people who love Christ, but there are those who don't, and they become enemies of the cross now. And, and he says, here's why. Here's what happened to them. Their end is destruction. Here's why. Because their God is their appetite. You know hunger pains when you're on a diet. They're fierce the first few weeks, aren't they? <laughs> you miss that cheesecake so much, you dream about it. You know the idea here now. See, the appetite is their God. They're desiring things. They dream about it. They long for it. They'll lay everything aside because now they've been given over to this appetite of wickedness. Notice whose glory is in their shame. They go from declaring the things of God, maybe being raised that way, that God says marriage is this between a man and a woman. No doubt, there's no, there's no even, even a hint of anything else in the scriptures, no matter what poor interpreters say. And they go to fighting for that and attacking churches and schools as we have suffered ourselves. This is what happens. And that now their shame becomes their glory, right? This is what he's saying. Who set their minds on earthly things, they have... They have abandoned the things above, the things where, where the Christian is going to go and rejoice eternity. They've let that go. They do not desire those things because they really never did, and their flesh now has full control over them. But then look at this reminder. For our citizenship is in heaven. 
I am a resident in heaven because I'm positioned with Jesus Christ. I have a place at the table of my Father. I have an earthly address here. It is temporary. My home is heaven. It is yours. See, this is quite different. The previous verses, they're fighting for everything on this earth. They're fighting for things that will be judged and will die. Here now, Paul turns our attention to our final resting place, this citizenship in heaven, from which we also eagerly, and that's the word I've been after. I know a long ways to get there, but that's the word I'm after. Eagerly waiting for the return of Christ, aren't we? I love that word. It has a, a righteous anxiousness to it. The Lord's coming back. The early church used to say, Maranatha. That's how they spoke to one another. They reminded each other that it was worth the fight. He's coming back. And yes, it's difficult. Yes, we lost our friend to the lions in front of the Romans. And others were slayed in front of the crowds. But our Lord is coming back. See, that's the reminder. And Paul says, we eagerly await for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it just gets better, right? Look at verse 21. Who will, without a shadow of a doubt, transform your body? Will is their future tense, so you don't get the great body yet. But it's coming. <laughs> when we see him, we'll be like him. We will not battle with sin. We'll have a body that will live throughout eternity. When we see him, we'll be like him. We'll be transformed to the body of our humble estate. That's this rag right now, right? Into conformity with the body of his glory. I love studying Jesus after his resurrection. He's kind of fun. We don't see too many passages there, but man, he shows up through locked doors, eats some food, <laughs> preaches some great messages, visits the saints. This is our Lord, and this is what we look forward to. And he does this. He does this by the exertion of the power that he has, even, listen to this, to subject all things to himself. As we were singing that song, our, our, that great hymn that was rewritten there, but all creatures of our God and King. I said, Lord, I, I don't pretend to know what that means, but I can see the entire universe bowing before Jesus. Sun, moon, stars, planets, oceans, lands, creatures, all bowing in homage to the King. But I want my way right now. <laughs> see, that's not a Christian. And though we struggle with those things, a Christian pursues the Lord. Go back to 1 Corinthians. I just want to show you how he began the book. I was reminded of this week as I thought, man, I think Paul said this in the beginning of the letter. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. I think, my God concerning you, for the grace of God which is given in Christ Jesus. So many prepositional phrases of our position in Christ, right? That in everything... You were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge. Even the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, he tells these Corinthians. So that you're not lacking any gift. Here we go. Awaiting eagerly the, the, uh, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and you're younger. I, I don't think I was running around going, Jesus, come back when I was young all the time. But as you grow in Christ, one of the marks is you long to see the one who died for you. 
you start to long for it. You long for death to come or clouds to part or however the Lord takes you home to be with him. You long for that time. I love our seniors here. I love spending time with them. We have something coming up. I'm looking forward to that. Um, Because our seniors have been through a lot of life. Some of them have fought wars. Some of them have seen things that us younger ones have not. And I love being with them because when they truly love Christ, when you talk with them, they long to see Jesus. Do you eagerly wait the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? See, these things were given to us for that example so that we would not crave, and this is the word he used earlier, he would not crave evil things. I, I, thought, I kept thinking about that phrase over the week. I said, Lord, there's cravings that I have that are not of you. Help me keep those things in right balance with you because there's a lot of good things you can crave. That cheesecake in itself is not bad. (laughs) But where is it in the balance of stewardship and care and how we walk with the Lord and, and, and a million other things, right? Our marriages, our children, our businesses, all the things that we take care of in this life. Are we craving evil? Well, notice in this verse that he says that they were written, all of these problems, this abuse of grace and these examples of their death and judgment that God fell upon them were written for our instruction. So they're not just merely examples. Notice that. They're they're for instruction. So the example is now teaching, isn't it? As I went back and read articles on Pearl Harbor this week, I thought, wow. The examples were given, but the instruction was not taught or heeded. That's what happens into our life all the time. And so there's instruction for the, for the, the Christian as he, as he or she finishes out this final age. Now notice the word instruction. It's an interesting word. Uh, Nutheza is the word. We get nuthetic from it. It's, a, it's not so much a common teaching. It's more the idea of admonishing and teaching. And, and the scripts, so, so I wrote in my notes, I said, the scriptures are counseling us here, Scott. These scriptures are counseling us. Are we heeding the counsel? Or we go, well, yeah. Are, are we heeding the counsel? And in this instance, they're admonishing us and warning us. Can you imagine warning some, if they continue down that road, there's this great cliff and they're going to drive wide off it. And they go, hey, thanks, yeah. Sure, you bet. Boom. Has that happened to you? I can, I can remember things in my life, the spiritual leader saying, Scott, we want to warn you of this. Thanks, old guy. <laughs> he was dead right. We've seen this happen, haven't we, in our own lives? And so here the scriptures are counseling, they're warning, they're admonishing us, they're persuading us to change our behavior in light of a coming Christ, to repent of things that that are contrary to God. And notice this final clause here in verse 11. It helps give perspective to the sense of urgency. Look what he says here. Upon whom the end of the ages have come. Now think about this, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we turned the corner of the ages, didn't we? This church age marks the end of an old covenant, the beginning of a new. That terminology works its way into the writers of the scriptures 
terminology all the time. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, in, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Certainly talking about new life and so forth. But that was the new covenant. The new covenant is not called the new covenant for nothing. It's new. It's really some guys have translated the life covenant. Life came as Christ came and ushered in the second, Esther, he took away the first, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9. And so when we look at a phrase like this, it tells us that the sovereign direction of God is in motion. And I want you to think about that. We're, at the, we're, we're in the last age, right? There's, meaning there's, there's not another age of some other group or something that's coming. It, it was the Old Testament age and the New Testament age, and then Christ returns, Right? And so, so we realize that there's a sovereign direction of God in motion. And like him, it doesn't change. And there's many out there that try to usher in things by trying to establish this or do this or get all these people to do that. And maybe God will return. No, God is sovereign. He's at this in motion. And we are along for the ride. And as we ride along with him, we're to walk with him. And so think about this final age. Isn't it beautiful? God is gathering his people, both Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. Galatians 3.28 tells us all belong to him through grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone. God's provided this way. And, and there's people from every walk of life he's gathering together. We're the people of the end. That's what he's telling us. And certainly there's going to be an in-gathering our leadership believes that there's an in-gathering and gathers Israel, the, the remnant that looks on the one they pierced and he promise, his promises are fulfilled to them. Praise the Lord for that. But, but Paul's point is clear here. Don't get too lost in all of that. Don't waste time. <laughs> He's given a list of warnings that will, will drag you through the wilderness if point A and point B are here and you want to go this way, it's going to take you a long time to get there. Somebody I was with, Samir, where is he at? There he is. Samir, we were talking about Egypt. We're going to Egypt in the fall together to preach and teach and train leaders. He was showing me on, on a map of the route that the nation had to take because of their sin and how quickly they could have been in the promised land. And I thought, Lord, that's just us. Things could be back to what God would want us to be, but we decide not to bend the knee and we take the long route. And everything dies around us. Marriages die, relationships die, all kinds of things die because we're stubborn and hard-hearted and don't want to do things God's way. And, we, and so he's giving us these things. These are, this is a clear warning, don't waste time. These Old Testament examples were given to our instruction so we can fulfill this final calling as God's people. Christ has been the primary emphasis all the way through the Old Testament. It's pointing forward. This eschatological conclusion is all pointed throughout the Bible to this age. And so the Old Testament marked the beginning of the promises. The New Testament marks the completion of that. And yet... People have to be given such extreme examples to waken them to what God is doing. I pray these last couple of weeks, and many of you have contacted me. I know there's been 
counseling happening because of some of the things we touched on. But we're praying that God will awaken all of us. There's, there, there's a time coming where time will be no more. And God will bring about all these divine purposes in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, let the Scripture speak. Do not quench the Spirit. Let the Word of God pour into our hearts. Bow your knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ because the end of the age is coming, period. Second thought. A prideful stand that leads to a destructive fall. After a strong admonishment, Paul closes the section with one more charge. I would call this more of a charge. It is a warning as well, but look at verse 12 before he goes into a great encouragement. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Well, there's a strong deductive therefore there isn't there, right? After 11 verses of strong charging and warning and challenging, he comes to this deductive thought. You think you're standing? You think you're in control of all these things? You better heed this, lest you fall. He uses Israel as the perfect example. God was with them night and day. He put his man, the one who would intercede for them right in their midst. He gave them personally his word written to them, led to them, and yet they rejected. And so Paul is saying that the person who thinks that they stand, even though God has given all this instruction, and he's certainly referring back to the abuse of grace by Israel and the examples of Israel, but he's warning us, you think you're standing, you think you're okay, you may fall. As you remember, the warnings began in chapter 9, verse 27. And he says, don't be disqualified. And now he gives this warning of don't fall. I, I hate when my phone rings, and this has happened many times in ministry, and I hear from a dear pastor friend of mine, and they say, Scott, we just called to let you know that this pastor fell. That's the words they use. It's biblical. There's nothing more devastating because we know the effects it has on the church. We know the victories, temporary victories that Satan wins during those battles. And it doesn't just pastors. It's, it's anyone. It's a head of the home. It's, it's anyone who rejects the counsel of God's word. When they fall, the, the consequences are devastating. And he's warning us here. And this means that the Corinthians, like the Israelites, may fail to obtain the prize of the upward calling of Christ. He sees this. He sees the possibility that there's those that are not committed to Christ. And so he warns them of placing themselves in a way of judgment through their idolatry that leads to immorality that will test God and then begin to grumble and reject God. And all of this reflects the sinful nature of pride and the rejection of God's grace. So God chooses one more lesson here and puts it on Paul's heart. Let me read this verse and see if you can think about what Old Testament verse he's thinking of. Verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Many of you are thinking of Proverbs sixteen eighteen: Pride comes before destruction. Pride, literally in the Hebrew, pride then the fall. Pride, 
then the fall. Pride leads to fall. That was the problem here in the nation of Israel. They were so proud. They, they wanted to do things their way. God had been so gracious. He had provided temporary involvement with him through a sacrificial system where they could come to him and be in his presence and be right with him. He'd given them so much grace, and yet their pride said they wanted to enjoy the world and take on the gods of the world, and it led to destruction. This is a side note. I, I find it fairly ironic that the homosexual agenda in America has used the word pride as a catchphrase. It saddens me. The whole month of June is given over to their goals and agenda. And I think it, I just look at it, I go, that's what it's going to be. You got one little run. You get, you get one little run, and then comes judgment. Because you reject a God who graciously designed you and chose your gender and chose who you are. Christians, though, on the other hand, we stand for Christ because we're going to stand with Him forever. It isn't a, it isn't a month. <laughs> we're, we're to live 365 days a year. We're going to be with Him forever, right? Are they going to have a month? Let's live for Jesus. And, and don't forget, though, I, I want to be clear on this because I've met with a lot of people caught in homosexual sin through the years, and I really do have a love for them. I don't want them to perish but remember, most of the people died not from just immorality, but from complaining. <laughs> so be careful <laughs> as we go through that. But in, as we get back to the context here, we find Paul is writing to this Corinth church and to us. And when, he, when, when we become consumed with self and our desires for our freedoms, right? Here's Christian liberty has been the theme. Uh, and we, we begin to take on this greater than, than the, the weaker or the younger brother or sister in Christ. Now we carelessly put ourselves in a place where we may fall because of our pride. And this is doubtlessly why Proverbs 16, 18 was led on the heart of Paul. And this is because it's easy to find ourselves in confidence of ourselves rather than confidence in the Lord. We wake up thinking how wonderful we are, aren't we? Or, or at least this, you go, well, I don't, but you think about yourself, don't you? I don't feel good, I do this, that. I mean, you're just consumed with self. And that's what happens to us, and there's a fall coming. And so we have to train ourselves, we have to discipline ourselves. Paul uses that word, that word what we get for exercise and, and authority, and all those words, those great words, he uses those words so that we would discipline ourselves. Do you think we want soul care and DTP because we don't have enough to do? We know how valuable it is to our own lives and we want to share it with you that you'll walk with us in a disciplined manner, in a discipleship manner so we can love the Lord Jesus and not love the things of this world that are constantly pulling on our hearts, aren't they? And so we ask you to be part of discipleship. This is why we do this. We know the difficulties that are out there. So we hold to our own confidence instead of God's wisdom and guidance and grace. I was talking to a woman yesterday was telling me they just got done with a soul care meeting, and she said, we just marveled at who God was today. Just a little group, four, three, three and four people, just, they were meeting in the fellowship hall here, and I was out trying to clear my mind a little bit, walk the loop here around the church here, and I thought, wow. They looked, they observed the text, they interpreted the text, and they applied the text, and they were full of joy. See, that's what discipleship is. Notice this word fall. It's a, 
quite a term, isn't it? What's that mean? It has a lot of terminology to it. I mean, you have a Judas who falls, and you have an Esau that falls. They're they're damned forever. They'll go through the judgment of God. But you do have believers who fall. And I want to just close this point out with this thought. As believers, we can fall. And when we come to repentance, there's nothing more disturbing to our hearts of what that fall did to our relationship with Jesus in in a sense. It means at that point that we shut out Jesus, we shut out his words for a moment because we are so consumed with our will and our way, we did not see him as valuable. And I'm talking about a Christian right now, we do this. And we pursue that, we argue, we fight, we quarrel among us, James says, because we at that moment forget the gospel, forget all he has accomplished, and we find ourselves in difficulties. And we fall from joy. My mentor, one of many mentors, told me, he says, Scott, when you sin, you're going to lose your joy. Get right with God so you can get it back quickly. How many of us stay in sin for a long time? As Christians, we have an argument with our spouse or somebody. We go through something and we, and we don't even talk to each other. All joy is gone. The house is like a tomb. Am I talking to anybody besides me in here? Your life doesn't have any joy in it, right? The only time you can get joy is you can go buy something or get something or do something for some temporary happiness, but you don't have that joy of the Lord, and David begged God for it back when he sinned. See, this is the difference. Take heed, brothers and sisters, lest you fall. You want your joy back? Repent. Identify the things that are contrary to God. Say, God, this is contrary to you. It cost the death of your son. Tell him that. He already knows it. Verbalize it to him. Forgive me. I'm sorry, Lord. I repent. Help me change my direction here that you might be glorified. Well, Paul does something very extraordinary after this warning. He gives a great encouragement. And we find this in our third uh, third point, a grace greater than temptation and trials. Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Well, this final verse in the context here is probably one of the most well-known, isn't it? How many of you know this verse? I mean, we know it, don't we? We quote this. And most of the time, it's probably a little bit out of context because we don't go back and realize all of this that we've just learned, right? Wow, these examples of the abuse of the grace of God and the, and the death of so many because they rejected the faithfulness of God. But even as it stands alone, even if you just take this verse out of its context and look at it, it is encouraging, isn't it? That God would do something for us. 
Sin may lead you into some difficult circumstances, but the faithfulness of God will lead you out. And this is what he's saying. And how beautiful, after this strong warning against pride and self-confidence, that Paul is inspired to deliver such strong words of encouragement from God. He's there in the help of temptations and trials. He's there. And we see him say that. Paul reminds them and says, look, no temptation has overtaken you. It's just as common a man. He follows that up with the heels of how God is faithful and he'll bring you through it. Not around it. He'll bring you through it. I'm going to give you two final thoughts here before we close. One, um, or A, temptation and trials are common to man. This is a very interesting term. And, and hopefully by now, Christians and even ourselves here have been awakened to the danger, danger of of failings, right, in our lives, what can happen with those things as described in this chapter and how we can keep ourselves from the craving of evil. I hope that's taking place in your life, and I, and I think it was in some because we do see a different relationship with Paul in the Corinthians in the second letter. But if that's happened to you and if you've, you've, you've been awakened to potential fallings for these evil cravings in your life through this series, through the Word of God here, there's victory there. There's victory. The word temptation is uh, parasmas. It's, it's an interesting word. It, it means just simply to test or prove, and it, and it doesn't have a particular negative to it or positive to it. it it's, it's a word we just talked about testing. It's used from everything from temptations to testing the trueness of, of a ship or metals or something like that. But whether it becomes negative depends on our response to the trial. What are you going to do with a trial that God's led into your life? If we resist the desire to sin through the faithfulness of God, the test will strengthen your faith. If we succumb to the temptation or the trial and do not use the resource of the faithfulness of God, that's what the nation didn't do. They didn't cling to the faithfulness of God. They cling to their own resources, their own strength, the way they wanted to do things. Their flesh took over and they failed, and that would happen to us as well. And the consequences of sin often weaken our faith. And so some say, well, why does God let these trials and temptations into our life? The word parasmas can be translated either temptation or trial, but that's not how God works. Look at James chapter 1 with me. I want to prove this to you. You have to jump into James somewhere along the line when you talk about trials and temptations, don't you? James chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Now the same Greek word and root word of that is used all through this text. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive a crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Such great terminology in there, right? Perseverance in the trial. Hanging on to the faithfulness of God so you can persevere. It's, there's an approval that you really are saved. God's really changed you because though the trial was difficult, though you maybe even felt like you failed at times, you did cling to Christ and God's faithfulness and you re will receive a crown of life. And it does only come to those who love him. But then verse 13, we want to make some corrections here in case our thinking is wrong that God is doing something sinful. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be, be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. 
So here's our same word, parasmas, a root of it. He does not use evil to tempt. This is not what God does. But notice what happens. Here we learn a lot about ourselves here. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. There's where the temptation comes. Now think about this, brothers and sisters. There's There's a point in your life where something entices you. Something's caught your lustful desires. It doesn't always have to be immorality. It can be spending money. It can be constantly on vacation and not serving the Lord. I I don't know. It could be a million things, right? Something gets a hold of you. And so there's a process that takes place. This temptation comes when you begin carried away. That means you turned away from what you know is truth and you start being carried away by something that is contrary to God. So many things that could be. You're enticed. Notice you're enticed by your own lust. This isn't God doing this. This is our this is our flesh that is not, not being overcome by the Spirit of God. So now we've sequestered the Spirit of God. Our flesh has strength. Look at verse 15. Then when lust has conceived, oh, those are very, very uh, um, explicit words, aren't they? Something was enticed. Something was conceived. And it gives birth to sin. See, we start to learn how sin works here. This is why men like Joseph turn and ran. This is why Paul tells the young Timothy, flee immorality. Because there's an enticement there. And then the next step is conception. The next step is birth. And now you have the real real consequence to this sin now here in your life. And when sin is accomplished, what does it do? The final goal of sin has always been the same, to kill. That's what it does. And we watch it. We, We watch it kill marriages. We watch it kill relationships. We we watch it kill testimonies. We watch sin kill. That's what it does. It brings forth death. In verse 16, James says, Do not be deceived, my brethren. Don't think that this was God. This was your flesh. Not, Not bowing the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ and taking on the full privileges of a son and saying, or a daughter and saying, Oh, Spirit of God, fill my life with truth. So I don't give in to that. This is what God wants from us. James chapter 1, verse 2 and 4 tells us to consider it all joy, my brethren. When you encounter various trials, there's our word again. Knowing that the testing, there's a, there's a root word there of your faith, produces endurance. And let the endurance have its perfect result. See, see sin has its result, right? Sin leads to death. Lust starts to run. Conception takes place. Birth comes. Death follows it but not God's trials and testings. God sends those into your life, and those, when those take hold, they bring about a perfect result, and that result is that you will be complete and perfect, lacking nothing, and you'll worship God. And look, some of you are going through such hard trials. You don't know why God has allowed some of these things into your life, but I'm pleading with you through the Scriptures to cling to God and His faithfulness. Cling to the finished work of Jesus Christ and you'll come through this. And he'll bring you into that perfection where joy is unexpressible. Otherwise, 
you'll just wallow around in your sin. See, God says, look, I cause all things to work together. I have that all circled in my Bible like I do in a lot of words, the all. But I've thought there, contemplated so many times, going through hard times, going through disappointment, going through rejection, going through hurt, going through those times and saying, God, do you cause all things? Can you even take, he can, he's not responsible for evil, but he can even use evil in my life to bring about his purposes. If I'll seek him and love him and walk according to his purposes. So the circumstance that our trials occur in are the opportunity for the test, right? But often are neither good nor evil in of themselves, but good or evil comes when, when we're, we're strengthened by our faith or we decline to hang on to Jesus. This phrase, common to man, i got to hurry here. Anthropinos is a word, anthropinos. Anthropos, the study of humanity, right? You can hear how humanness is common to man. You can hear humanity in it. This is the word that's used here. And so Paul is saying your, your temptation or your trial is not superhuman, but the faithfulness of God is superhuman. <laughs> and you go, well, you don't know my trial. I promise you it's common to man because the Bible says it. Peter talks about suffering in first chapter 1 of 1 Peter and says that many of your brothers have gone through the same thing. And so it reminds us here that our temptations and our trials are not just unique to us. Many have experienced these things. Christ did, right? He took on flesh and he was tempted in all ways and he suffered, right? The, uh, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 18 says he suffered and so he could become an aid to those who were tempted. Hebrews 4.15, we have this high priest who, who sympathizes with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in all things and yet without sin, so you could run and cling to him. And then from the humanity, we have a whole, book, a whole chapter of Hebrews 11 of, of people, men and women, who suffered great difficult things, but clang to their faithfulness of God, hung on to his faithfulness, and God brought them through it. And so, brother and sister, what are you, what are you clinging to? See, that's a good question. Final thought tonight or this morning is the faithfulness of God that provides an escape and endurance. I love this, this little phrase. Notice the text says that God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. See, this speaks to the beauty and power of a God who loves his kids. He loves his children. It speaks to his faithfulness. He's not going to allow this to go beyond what you can handle. See, this is the reason why Flip Wilson was so wrong. The devil did not make you do it because he cannot make Christians sin. Now, maybe, uh, uh, did I put Flip Wilson in the faith? <laughs> He's wrong if he said it to Christians. Because God is able. And so the faithfulness of God is stronger than the temptation, stronger than the trial that you're going through. Because we have this deep well of spiritual resource that's bottomless in Jesus and in the word of God, and what is amazing is that the Corinthian believers and us too will often forego such resources. Some of these phrases are just outstanding. Notice he says, will provide. Will provide. There's a solution coming. Will you hang on? Will you trust him? Will you put your nose in the book and your, your heart and your mind in the book? Will you, will you study and understand and know God more as you go through the trial? Or will you just whine? 
See, the Bible says he will. He will provide. And notice he says the way. And that's interesting. There's a definite article there in the Greek. And so we translate it that way. There is a way that he will bring. Not a plan B. Not a plan C. He has a way he's going to bring it through you. Are you going to wait on him to bring you through it? I've had so many people tell me, Mrs. Scott, it was such a hard trial. For the longest time, I did not see how God was going to get me through this. And at the right moment, at the right time, what seemed to be at the end of my line, there he was. And I said he was there all along. He was leading you through his way. The word escape is an important word. It's, it's not translated to run around something. It actually is translated that you go through it. What trial are you avoiding? The Bible says that he, his, the way he helps you is he takes you through the trial, not around it. I think so often we're dodging things, aren't we? We're always trying to go some other way than God has for us. Are you going to go through it and hang on to his faithfulness? Or will you find yourself back in that wilderness? And finally, he says, look, the whole goal is to help you endure it. The way I have will help you endure it. Life's short, brothers and sisters. It's all going to come to an end someday. This is the final age, and we will be with our Lord and Savior. Well, let me just give you a couple of practical things to close this out. Jesus has the answer, doesn't he? He's always the answer. I remember the night before his death, he told his disciples, keep watching and praying that you, do, that you may not come into temptation. Isn't that interesting? What sound theology for us? Watch and pray. Are you spiritually alert or are you asleep on the job? The disciples were asleep. Are you spiritually alert? Do you know your Bible? Do you know your Savior? If you are not spiritually alert, attacks are coming, you're never going to see them coming because you're spiritually sleeping. So Jesus says, be alert. Keep watch. Pray. Prayer is a wonderful tool, isn't it? It causes us to humble ourselves before our Heavenly Father. It causes us to be dependent upon Him versus dependent upon ourselves. Prayer is our greatest, greatest tool to fight through our trials and temptations. Second, trust in your eternal position in Christ. You know, God never looks at you outside of seeing you in His Son. If you're a Christian and he always looks at you in sun, he sees you there. He doesn't look at you outside of that. So you're perfectly blameless and holy because he sees you in his son. You have to remember that. That brings us out of trials and temptations and brings us out of sin at times. Ephesians 1, 11 says, In him, that's Christ, also we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined. Don't be scared of that word. Our future has been predetermined according to his purpose who works all things to the counsel of his will, even the trial you're going through. I wrote in my notes, I said, I think God is often proving his faithfulness in my faith. He's proving his faithfulness in my faith. See, my faith tells me to turn to him. My flesh tells me to turn to myself. And he proves that over and over when you turn to him. Third, there's a Christ-centered aspect of this, focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews said it this way, chapter 12, verse 2, fix your eyes on Jesus. 
You want to run through the tape? You want to finish this age? You want to be there at the call of Christ when you come home by death or by rapture? Fix your eyes on Jesus because he's the author and the perfecter of your faith. For who the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the same, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's what we've been saying over and over. Preach the gospel to yourself. And when you quit preaching the gospel to yourself, you grow weary and you want to quit. That's what the writer said. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And then he said, who is been suffering to the point of shedding blood while striving against sin. Look, Christ endured so we can stand. MacArthur, in his commentary on this, used Pilgrim's Progress, and I, I hadn't thought about this, and it reminded me. And Bunyan wrote how Christian and hopeful, remember them wandering their way on the king's highway, they would get off the highway, and they would get lost. You remember they ended up in the field of despair. Some of you might be in that field right now. And the giant of despair found them. And of course, when the giant finds them, he beats them mercilessly, and he almost leaves them for dead, but brings them back to his dungeon and prison and palace, and he imprisons them in darkness without food, without water, left there to die. And after some time, Christian finally remembers he has a key in his pocket. The key is the promises of God. The key was called the promise. And that key unlocked every door in that doubting castle. Their faith was rallied. They believed the word of God. They unlocked every door, every gate. And once again, they found themselves back on the king's highway. Where are you, brother and sister? Are you on the king's highway? Or are you asleep in the field of despair? Or maybe even imprisoned? There is a way out. It is the promise that Jesus would never leave you nor forsake you. Don't cheapen his death. Don't cheapen his death by saying, he just doesn't help me, he's not there. He's there. And if he's not there, you're not saved. But if you're saved, he is there. And he will not forsake you. Turn to him. Father in heaven, we praise you for this series of messages found in this infallible, all-inspired text of 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13. It has challenged us, Lord. We need to be men and women, young adults, boys and girls who are committed to the faithfulness of God to try to put it in, to try to put death to our own self-confidence that often leads us into trouble. So Lord, I pray for any of us in this room who need to repent, turn from our self-confidence and put our faith in the promises of God and realize the gospel is new each and every day. He did die for us. He, did, he was judged in our place. He did set us free. We are not captive any longer. I pray, Lord, that you would remind us of that today. And you would cause us to walk with you in a way that is pleasing to you, glorifies you. And Lord, it brings back our joy so we can be joyful husbands and fathers and mothers and singles and, and young people, Lord who know the life-giving nature of Jesus Christ and live it, Lord. I pray this all in Jesus' name.
Amen.